Hello and welcome back to this Season 5, Episode 4 of Ken Reads the Classics. Today we continue with Hans Christian Andersen's fairy tales, and we are in the middle of a tale called The Shoes of Fortune. And this is a series of adventures that uh, the residents of Copenhagen go through as they wear these mysterious shoes. And so far, none of them have quite figured out that it was the shoes that created their interesting adventure. We're at chapter four with actually three titles. The first title is A Moment of Head Importance. Interesting. The second title is An Evening's Dramatic Readings. And third, A Most Strange Journey. So here we go. Every inhabitant of Copenhagen knows, from personal inspection, how the entrance to Frederick's Hospital looks. But as it is possible that others, who are not Copenhagen people, may also read this little work, we will beforehand give a short description of it. The extensive building is separated from the street by a pretty high railing, the thick iron bars of which are so far apart that in all seriousness, it is said, some very thin fellow had of a night occasionally squeezed himself through to go by and pay his little visits in the town. The part of the body most difficult to manage on such occasions was, no doubt, the head. Here, as is so often the case in the world, Long-headed people get through best. So much, then, for the introduction. One of the young men, whose head, in a physical sense only, might to be said of the thickest, had the watch that evening. The rain poured down in torrents, yet despite these two obstacles, the young man was obliged to go out, if it were but for a quarter of an hour. And, as to telling the doorkeeper about it, that, he thought, was quite unnecessary, if, with a whole skin, he were able to slip through the railings. There on the floor lay the galoshes, which the watchman had forgotten. He never dreamed for a moment that they were those of fortune, and they promised to do him good service in the wet, so he put them on. The question now was if he could squeeze himself through the grating, for he had never tried before. Well, there he stood. Would to heaven I had got my head through, said he involuntarily, and instantly through it slipped, easily and without pain, notwithstanding it was pretty large and thick. But now the rest of the body was to be got through. Ah, I am much too stout, groaned he aloud while fixed as in a vice. I had thought the head was the most difficult part of the matter, Oh, oh, I really cannot squeeze myself through. He now wanted to pull his overhasty head back again, but he could not. For his neck there was room enough, but for nothing more. His first feeling was of anger. His next that his temper fell to zero. The shoes of fortune had placed him in the most dreadful situation. And, unfortunately... It never occurred to him to wish himself free. The pitch-black clouds poured down their contents in still heavier torrents. Not a creature was to be seen in the streets. To reach up to the bell was what he did not like. To cry aloud for help would have availed him little. 
Besides, how ashamed would he have been to be found caught in a trap, like an outwitted fox? How was he to twist himself through? He saw clearly that it was his irrevocable destiny to remain a prisoner till dawn, or perhaps even late in the morning. Then the smith must be fetched to file away the bars. But all that would not be done so quickly as he could think about it. The whole charity school just opposite would be in motion. All the new booths with their not very courtier-like swarm of seamen would join them out of curiosity and would greet him with a wild hurrah (laughs) while he was standing in his pillory. There would be a mob, a hissing and rejoicing and jeering ten times worse than in the rows about the Jews some years ago. Oh, my blood is mounting to my brain. Tis enough to drive one mad. I shall go wild. I do not know what to do. Oh, were I but loose. My dizziness would then cease. Oh, were my head but loose. You see, he ought to have said that sooner. For the moment he expressed the wish, his head was free. And cured of all his paroxysms of love, he hastened off to his room, where the pains consequent on the fright of the shoes had prepared for him did not so soon take their leave. But you must not think that the affair is over now. It grows much worse. The night passed, the next day also, but nobody came to fetch the shoes. In the evening, dramatic readings were to be given at the little theater in King Street. The house was filled to suffocation, and among other pieces to be recited was a new poem by H.C. Anderson called My Aunt's Spectacles, the contents of which were pretty nearly as follows. A certain person had an aunt who boasted of a particular skill in fortune-telling with cards and who was constantly being stormed by persons that wanted to have a peep into futurity. But she was full of mystery about her art in which a certain pair of magic spectacles did her essential service. Her nephew, a merry boy, who was his aunt's darling, begged so long for these spectacles that, at last, she lent him the treasure, after having informed him, with many exhortations, that in order to execute the interesting trick, he need only repair to some place where a great many persons were assembled, and then, from a higher position whence he could overlook the crowd, pass the company in review before him through his spectacles. Immediately, the inner man of each individual would be displayed before him, like a game of cards, in which he unerringly might read what the future of every person presented was to be. Well pleased, the little magician hastened away to prove the powers of the spectacles in the theater. No place seeming to him more fitted for such a trial. He begged permission of the worthy audience and set his spectacles on his nose. A motley phantasmagoria presents itself before him, which he describes in a few satirical touches, yet without expressing his opinion openly. He tells the audience enough to set them all thinking and guessing, but in order to hurt nobody, he wraps his witty oracle judgments in a transparent veil, or rather in a lurid thundercloud, shooting forth bright sparks of wit 
that they may fall in the powder magazine of the expectant audience. The humorous poem was admirably recited, and the speaker much applauded. Among the audience was the young man of the hospital, who seemed to have forgotten his adventure of the preceding night. He had on the shoes, for as yet no lawful owner had appeared to claim them. And besides, it was so very dirty out of doors. They were just the thing for him, he thought. The beginning of the poem he praised with great generosity. He even found the idea original and effective. But that the end of it, like the Rhine, was very insignificant, proved, in his opinion, the author's want of invention. He was without genius. This was an excellent opportunity to have said something clever. Meanwhile, he was haunted by the idea he should like to possess such a pair of spectacles himself. Then, perhaps, by using them circumspectly, one would be able to look into people's hearts, which, he thought, would be far more interesting than merely to see what was to happen next year. For that we should know all in proper time, but the other never. I can now, said he to himself, fancy the whole row of ladies and gentlemen sitting there in the front row. If one could but see into their hearts, yes, that would be a revelation, a sort of bazaar. In that lady yonder, so strangely dressed, I should find for certain a large milliner's shop. In that one the shop is empty, but it wants cleaning plain enough but there would also be some good stately shops among them. Alas, he sighed, I know one in which all is stately, but there sits already a spruce young shopman, which is the only thing that's amiss in the whole shop. All would be splendidly decked out, and we should hear, Walk in, gentlemen, pray walk in. Here you will find all you please to want. Ah, I wish to heaven I could walk in and take a trip right through the hearts of those present. And behold, to the shoes of fortune, this was the cue. The whole man shrunk together, and a most uncommon journey through the hearts of the front row of spectators now began. The first heart through which he came was that of a middle-aged lady, but he instantly fancied himself in the room of the institution for the cure of the crooked and deformed, where casts of misshapen limbs are displayed in naked reality on the wall. Yet there was this difference. In the institution, the casts were taken at the entry of the patient, but here they were retained and guarded in the heart while the sound persons went away. They were, namely, casts of female friends whose bodily or mental deformities were here most faithfully preserved. With snake-like writhings of an idea, he glided into another female heart, but this seemed to him like a large holy fane. The white dove of innocence fluttered over the altar. How gladly would he have sunk upon his knees, but he must away to the next heart yet he still heard the pealing tones of the organ, and he himself seemed to have become a newer and a better man. He felt unworthy to tread the neighboring sanctuary which a poor garret with a sick bedrid mother revealed. But God's warm sun streamed through the open window, lovely roses nodded from the wooden flower boxes on the roof, 
and two sky-blue birds sang rejoicingly, while the sick mother implored God's richest blessings on her pious daughter. He now crept on hands and feet through a butcher's shop. At least on every side and above and below, there was not but flesh. It was the heart of a most respectable rich man, whose name is certain to be found in the directory. He was now in the heart of the wife of this worthy gentleman. It was an old, dilapidated, moldering dovecot. The husband's portrait was used as a weathercock, which was connected in some way or other to the doors. And so they opened and shut of their own accord, whenever the stern old husband turned around. Hereupon he wandered into a boudoir formed entirely of mirrors, like the one in Castle Rosenberg. But here the glasses magnified to an astonishing but here the glasses magnified to an astonishing degree. On the floor, in the middle of the room, sat, like a Dalai Lama, the insignificant self of the person, quite confounded at his own greatness. He then imagined he had got into a needle case full of pointed needles of every size. This is certainly the heart of an old maid, thought he, but he was mistaken. It was the heart of a young military man, a man, as people said, of talent and feeling. In the greatest perplexity, he now came out of the last heart in the row. He was unable to put his thoughts in order, and fancied that his too lively imagination had run away with him. Good heavens, sighed he, I have surely a disposition to madness. Tis dreadfully hot here. My blood boils in my veins, and my head is burning like coal and he now remembered the important event of the evening before, how his head had got jammed in between the iron railings of the hospital. That's what it is, no doubt, said he. I must do something in time. Under such circumstances, a Russian bath might do me good. I only wish I were already on the upper bank. And so there he lay on the uppermost bank in the vapor bath but with all his clothes on, in his boots and galoshes, while the hot drops fell scalding from the ceiling on his face. Halloa! he cried, leaping down. The bathing attendant on his side uttered a loud cry of astonishment when he beheld in the bath a man completely dressed. The other, however, retained sufficient presence of mind to whisper to him, "'Tis a bet, and I have won it.' But the first thing he did as soon as he got home was to have a large blister put on his chest and back to draw out his madness. The next morning he had a sore chest and a bleeding back, and accepting the fright, that was all he had gained by the shoes of fortune. All right, that ends chapter four of the Shoes of Fortune. Uh, it's all part of Hans Christian Andersen's fairy tales. So now we're going to take a break and hear a word from our sponsor. All right, very good. We're back from that word from our sponsor, a little commercial break, if you will. And we're going to continue with Hans Christian Anderson's fairy tales. And we're in the middle of the Shoes of Fortune. And we're moving on to chapter five. Metamorphosis of the Copying Clerk The watchman, whom we have certainly not forgotten, 
thought, meanwhile, of the galoshes he had found and taken with him to the hospital. He now went to fetch them, and as neither the lieutenant nor anybody else in the street claimed them as his property, they were delivered over to the police office. And here's an asterisk. As on the continent, in all law and police practices, nothing is verbal, but any circumstance, however trifling, is reduced to writing. The labor, as well as the number of papers that thus accumulate, is enormous. In a police office, consequently, we find copying clerks among many other scribes of various denominations, of which, it seems, our hero was one. Why, I declare... The shoes look just like my own, said one of the clerks, eyeing the newly found treasure, whose hidden powers even he, sharp as he was, was not able to discover. One must have more than the eye of a shoemaker to know one pair from the other, said he, soliloquizing, and putting, at the same time, the galoshes in search of an owner, beside his own in the corner. Here, sir, said one of the men, who, panting, brought him a tremendous pile of papers. The copying clerk turned round and spoke a while with the man about the reports and legal documents in question. But when he had finished, and his eye fell again on the shoes, he was unable to say whether those to the left or those to the right belonged to him. At all events it must be those which are wet, thought he. But this time, in spite of his cleverness, he guessed quite wrong for it was just those of fortune which played, as it were, into his hands, or rather, on his feet. And why, I should like to know, are the police never to be wrong? So he put them on quickly, stuck his papers in his pocket, and took besides a few under his arm, intending to look them through at home to make the necessary notes. It was noon, and the weather that had threatened rain began to clear up, while gaily-dressed holiday folks filled the streets. A little trip to Fredericksburg would do me no great harm, thought he, for I, poor beast of burden that I am, have so much to annoy me that I don't know what a good appetite is. Tis a bitter crust, alas, at which I am condemned to gnaw. Nobody could be more steady or quiet than this young man. We therefore wish him joy of the excursion with all our heart, and it will be certainly beneficial for a person who leads so sedentary a life. In the park he met a friend, one of our young poets, who told him that the following day he should set out on his long-intended tour. "'So you are going away again?' said the clerk. "'You are a very free and happy being. We others are chained by the leg and held fast to our desk.' "'Yes,' But it is a chain, friend, which ensures you the blessed bread of existence, answered the poet. You need feel no care for the coming morrow. When you are old, you receive a pension. True, said the clerk, shrugging his shoulders. And yet you are the better off. To sit at one's ease and poetize, that is a pleasure. Everybody has something agreeable to say to you. And you are always your own master. No, friend, you should but try what it is to sit from one year's end to the other, occupied with and judging the most trivial matters. The poet shook his head. The copying clerk did the same. Each one kept to his own opinion, and so they separated. It is a strange race, these poets, 
said the clerk, who was very fond of soliloquizing. I should like some day, just for a trial, to take such nature upon me, and be a poet myself. I am very sure I should make no such miserable verses as the others. Today, methinks, is a most delicious day for a poet. Nature seems anew to celebrate her awakening into life. The air is so unusually clear, the clouds sail on so buoyantly, and from the green herbage a fragrance is exhaled that fills me with delight. For many a year I have not felt as at this moment. We see already by the foregoing effusion that he is become a poet. To give further proof of it, however, would in most cases be insipid, for it is a most foolish notion to fancy a poet different from other men. Among the latter, there may be far more poetical natures than many an acknowledged poet, when examined more closely, could boast of. The difference only is that the poet possesses a better mental memory, on which account he is able to retain the feeling and the thought till they can be embodied by means of words, a faculty which the others do not possess. But the transition from a commonplace nature to one that is richly endowed, demands always a more or less breakneck leap over a certain abyss which yawns threateningly below. And thus must the sudden change with the clerk strike the reader. The sweet air, continued he of the police office in his dreamy imaginings, how it reminds me of the violets in the garden of my aunt Magdalena. Yes, then I was a little wild boy, who did not go to school very regularly. Oh, heavens, tis a long time since I have thought on those times. The good old soul. She lived behind the exchange. She always had a few twigs or green shoots in water. Let the winter rage without as it might. The violets exhaled their sweet breath, whilst I pressed against the window panes, covered with fantastic frostwork, the copper coin I had heated on the stove, and so made peepholes. What splendid vistas were then open to my view! What change! What magnificent! Yonder in the canal lay the ships frozen up, and deserted by their whole crews, with a screaming crow for the sole occupant. But when the spring, with a gentle stirring motion, announced her arrival, a new and busy life arose. With songs and hurrahs the ice was sawn asunder. The ships were fresh tarred and rigged, that they might sail away to distant lands. But I have remained here, must always remain here, sitting at my desk in the office, and patiently see other people fetch their passports to go abroad. Such is my fate, alas! sighed he, and was again silent. Great heaven, what is to come to me? Never have I thought or felt like this before. It must be the summer air that affects me with feelings almost as disquieting as they are refreshing. He felt in his pocket for the papers. These police reports will soon stem the torrent of my ideas and effectually hinder any rebellious overflowing of the time-worn banks of official duties he said to himself consolingly, while his eye ran over the first page. Dame Tigbreth, Tragedy in Five Acts. What is that? 
and yet it is undeniably my own handwriting. Have I written the tragedy? Wonderful, very wonderful. And this, what have I here? Intrigue on the ramparts, or the day of repentance, vaudeville with new songs to the most favorite airs. The deuce! Where did I get all this rubbish? Someone must have slipped it in slyly into my pocket for a joke. There is, too, a letter from me, a crumpled letter, and the seal broken. Yes, it was not a very polite epistle from the manager of the theater, in which both pieces were flatly refused. Ahem, said the Kirk breathlessly, and quite exhausted, he seated himself on a bank. His thoughts were so elastic, his heart so tender, and involuntarily he picked one of the nearest flowers. It is a simple daisy, just bursting out of the bud. What the botanist tells us after a number of imperfect lectures, the flower proclaimed in a minute. It related the mythus of its birth, told of the power of the sunlight that spread out its delicate leaves and forced them to impregnate the air with their incense. And then he thought of the manifold struggles of life which in like manner awaken the budding flowers of feeling in our bosom. Light and air contend with chivalric emulation for the love of the fair flower that bestowed her chief favors on the latter. Full of longing, she turned towards the light, and as soon as it vanished, rolled on her tender leaves together and slept in the embraces of the air. It is the light which adorns me, said the flower. But tis the air which enables thee to breathe, said the poet's voice. Close by stood a boy who dashed his stick into a wet ditch. The drops of water splashed up to the green leafy roof, and the clerk thought of the million of ephemera which in a single drop were thrown up to a height that was as great, doubtless, for their size, as for us if we were to be hurled above the clouds." While he thought of this, and of the whole metamorphosis he had undergone, he smiled and said, I sleep and dream, but it is wonderful how one can dream so naturally, and know besides so exactly that it is but a dream. If only tomorrow on waking, I could again call to mind so vividly, I seem in unusually good spirits, my perception of things is clear. I feel as light and cheerful as though I were in heaven. But I know for a certainty that if tomorrow a dim remembrance of it should swim before my mind, it will then seem nothing but stupid nonsense, as I have often experienced already, especially before I enlisted under the banner of the police. For that dispels like a whirlwind all the visions of an unfettered imagination." All we hear or say in a dream that is fair and beautiful is like the gold of the subterranean spirits. It is rich and splendid when it is given us, but viewed by daylight we find only withered leaves. Alas! He sighed quite sorrowful and gazed at the chirping birds that hopped contentedly from branch to branch. They are much better off than I. To fly must be a heavenly art, and happy do I prize that creature in which it is innate. Yes, could I exchange my nature with any other creature, I fain would be such a happy little lark. 
He had hardly uttered these hasty words when the skirts and sleeves of his coat folded themselves together into wings. The clothes became feathers and the galoshes claws. He observed it perfectly and laughed in his heart. Now then, there is no doubt that I am dreaming, but I never before was aware of such mad freaks as these. And up he flew into the green roof and sang, but in the song there was no poetry, for the spirit of the poet was gone. The shoes, as is the case with anybody who does what he has to do properly, could only attend to one thing at a time. He wanted to be a poet, and he was one. He now wished to be a merry chirping bird, but when he was metamorphosed into one, the former peculiarities ceased immediately. It is really pleasant enough, said he. The whole day long I sit in the office amid the driest law papers, and at night I fly in my dream as a lark in the gardens of Fredericksburg. One might really write a very pretty comedy upon it. He now fluttered down into the grass, turned his head gracefully on every side, and with his bill pecked the pliant blades of grass, which, in comparison to his present size, seemed as majestic as the palm branches of northern Africa. Unfortunately, the pleasure lasted but a moment. Presently, black night overshadowed our enthusiast, who had so entirely missed his part of copying clerk at the police office. Some vast object seemed to be thrown over him. It was a large oilskin cap, which a sailor boy of the quay had thrown over the struggling bird. A coarse hand sought its way carefully in under the broad rim and seized the clerk over the back and wings. In the first moment of fear, he called, indeed as loud as he could, "'You impotent little black guard! I am a copying clerk at the police office!' and you know you cannot insult any belonging to the constabulary force without a chastisement. Besides, you good-for-nothing rascal, it is strictly forbidden to catch birds in the royal gardens of Fredericksburg, but your blue uniform betrays where you come from. This fine tirade sounded, however, to the ungodly sailor boy like a mere pee-pee-pee. He gave the noisy bird a knock on its beak and walked on. He was soon met by two schoolboys of the upper class, that is to say, as individuals, for with regard to learning they were in the lowest class in the school, and they bought the stupid bird. So the copying clerk came to Copenhagen as guest, or rather as prisoner, in a family living in Gother Street. "'Tis well that I am dreaming,' said the clerk, "'or I really should get angry. First I was a poet, now sold for a pence as a lark.' No doubt it was that accursed poetical nature which has metamorphosed me into such a poor, harmless little creature. It is really pitiable, particularly when one gets into the hands of a little black guard, perfect in all sorts of cruelty to animals. All I should like to know is how the story will end. The two schoolboys, the proprietors now of the transformed clerk, carried him into an elegant room. A stout, stately dame received them with a smile, but she expressed much dissatisfaction that a common field bird, as she called the lark, should appear in such high society. For today, however, she would allow it, 
and they must shut him in the empty cage that was standing in the window. Perhaps he will amuse my good Polly, added the lady, looking with a benignant smile at a large green parrot that swung himself backwards and forwards most comfortably in his ring, inside a magnificent brass-wired cage. Today is Polly's birthday, said she with stupid simplicity, and the little brown field bird must wish him joy. Mr. Polly uttered not a syllable in reply, but swung to and fro with dignified condescension, while a pretty canary, as yellow as gold, that had lately been brought from its sunny, fragrant home, began to sing aloud. Noisy creature, will you be quiet, screamed the lady of the house, covering the cage with an embroidered white pocket handkerchief. Chirp, chirp, sighed he. That was a dreadful snowstorm. And he sighed again and was silent. The copying clerk, or, as the lady said, the brown field bird, was put into a small cage close to the canary and not far from my good Polly. The only human sounds that the parrot could bawl out were, Come, let us be men. Everything else that he said was as unintelligible to everybody as the chirping of the canary, except to the clerk, who was now a bird too. He understood his companion perfectly. I flew about beneath the green palms and the blossoming almond trees, sang the canary. I flew around with my brothers and sisters over the beautiful flowers and over the glassy lakes where the bright water plants nodded to me from below. There, too, I saw many splendidly dressed paroquets and told the drollest stories and the wildest fairy tales without end. Oh, those were uncouth birds, answered the parrot. They had no education and talked of whatever came into their head. If my mistress and all her friends can laugh at what I say, so may you too, I should think. It is a great fault to have no taste for what is witty or amusing. Come, let us be men. Ah, have you no remembrance of love for the charming maidens that danced beneath the outspread tents beside the bright, fragrant flowers? Do you no longer remember the sweet fruits and the cooling juice in the wild plants of our never-to-be-forgotten home? Said the former inhabitant of the Canary Isles, continuing his dithyrambic. Oh, yes, said the parrot. But I am far better off here. I am well fed and get friendly treatment. I know I am a clever fellow, and that is all I care about. Come, let us be men. You are of a poetical nature, as it is called. I, on the contrary, possess profound knowledge and inexhaustible wit. You have genius, but clear-sighted, calm discretion does not take such lofty flights and utter such high natural tones. For this they have covered you over. They never do the like to me, for I cost more. Besides, they are afraid of my beak, and I have always a witty answer at hand. Come, let us be men. O oh, warm, spicy land of my birth, sang the canary bird, I will sing of thy dark green bowers, of the calm bays where the pendant boughs kiss the surface of the water. I will sing of the rejoicing of all my brothers and sisters where the cactus grows in wanton luxuriance. Spare us your elgiac tones, said the parrot, giggling. 
rather speak of something at which one may laugh heartily. Laughing is an infallible sign of the highest degree of mental development. Can a dog or a horse laugh? No, but they can cry. The gift of laughing was given to man alone. Ha, 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 screamed Polly and added his stereotype witticism. Come, let us be men. Poor little Danish gray bird, said the canary. You have been caught too. It is no doubt cold enough in your woods, but there at least is the breath of liberty. Therefore, fly away. In the hurry, they have forgotten to shut your cage, and the upper window is open. Fly, my friend. Fly away. Farewell. Instinctively, the clerk obeyed. With a few strokes of his wings, he was out of the cage. But at the same moment, the door, which was only ajar, and which led to the next room, began to creak. And supple and creeping came the large tomcat into the room, and began to pursue him. The frightened canary fluttered about in his cage. The parrot flapped his wings and cried, Come, let us be men! The clerk felt a mortal fright and flew through the window, far away over the houses and streets. At last he was forced to rest a little. The neighboring house had a something familiar about it. A window stood open. He flew in. It was his own room. He perched upon the table. Come, let us be men! He shouted involuntarily, imitating the chatter of the parrot. And at the same moment, he was again a copying clerk. But he was sitting in the middle of the table. Heaven help me, he cried. How did I get up here and so buried in sleep too? After all, that was a very unpleasant, disagreeable dream that haunted me. The whole story is nothing but silly, stupid nonsense. All right, well, that ends chapter five of the Shoes of Fortune, which are all part of Hans Christian Andersen's fairy tales. So that's the end of today's episode. I hope you join me next time on Ken Reads the Classics.